Did anybody fill Nate in uh, with the fact that Ward is a hostile? Oh, no. <laughs> I'm Not super yet. hostile. Super hostile. It's going to be fun. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the JavaScript Jabber link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Adventures in Angular. Does your team need to master AngularJS? Oasis Digital offers Angular Bootcamp, a three-day in-person workshop class for individuals or teams. Bring us to your site or send developers to ours, angularbootcamp.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Adventures in Angular show. This week on our panel, we have Lucas Rubelke. Yo. Ward Bell. Hello, everybody. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we have a special guest, and that's Nate Murray. Hey, everybody. Now, Nate, uh, I know you from the emails I get about ng-book. Are are there other things that we should mention when we introduce you? Uh, Yeah, no, ng-book is kind of like our our main dig right now. So we're... um, I'm the co-founder of Fullstack.io, so we wrote the uh, original ng-book, and then over the last year we've been working on ng-book 2, and then we've been venturing out a little bit more. We even started a book on uh, React this, uh, we started a new book on React this year, and um, we're also, uh, Lucas and I are actually working on a new book, a new top secret book that's about uh, doing modern Angular 1, right? So a lot of teams are still stuck on Angular 1, and how do you how do you use what we've learned uh, in Angular 2 and in React and backport that to Angular 1. And some of that includes Redux, actually. So uh, that's that's what we're working on. Very cool. Well, we brought you on because I read this article. Uh, it was actually a tutorial building Redux in TypeScript with Angular 2. And uh, anyway, we've had kind of a little bit of back and forth here about whether or not this is a good idea or at least how useful it is. Um, and so... I'm a little bit curious myself just from the standpoint of where you see Redux fitting in with Angular 2. Because Angular 2 for me, or Angular in general, is mostly about the interactions that the user has with the page. And I wind up kind of uh, putting in my own stuff that, for example, gets data from the back end and things like that. Um, and it looks like Redux can do some of that stuff, but also, the idea of reducers and functions that manage state is really interesting. I just, I'm not familiar enough with it to go, oh, it's a slam dunk here. Yeah, I think you, there are definitely uh, things that you get around the edges that are difficult with Redux, right? I mean, uh, sometimes like server interaction, right? You have to, um, uh, you know, put in things like Redux thunk or there, there, there are definitely uh, uh, things around the edges that are tricky. But I think one of the benefits that you get is, um, it's very understandable, especially with one-way data flow. You can really trace uh, changes down through the system. So there's a big win there in being able to have 
a system where you can uh, like create an event and then trace through everywhere that that's handled and the state that it affects in your system. So, you know, I keep hearing that, and I'm not. You know, I've been programming a while, and uh, my boss never came to me and said, "I really want to be able to trace the data flow." I just don't know why that's important. So maybe you can tell us why that's important. It's not necessarily that I would defend Redux as like the end-all be-all of all uh, data architecture paradigms. But I think that it is, um, it kind of grew out of a response of, um, so for instance, like two-way data binding, I think, is an idea that uh, it's time has come and gone, right? That like the idea is, well, we've got our views that show our views and we've got, and we just manipulate our data in our controllers, for instance, in Angular 1, right? Or in our services. And then we just change the data on our code side and our templates will automatically be updated. And then our forms will update our data and that will automatically update our backend and everything will just work for us automatically. And um, well, that sounds really nice in theory, I think one of the things you find with like two-way data binding is just that like you end up with a rat's nest of these cascading side effects that um, as your app grows, it's really difficult to kind of trace back like uh, it's it's like tracing what changes when you submit that form or when you press that button uh, becomes like extremely difficult. Um, and so really? really, I keep hearing that, Nate. I keep hearing that as an assertion. And when you say it's time has come and gone, that's like saying breathing. The time for breathing has come and gone. we got to just inhale and forget about exhaling. But um, what's the experience that you have that reveals to you this problem that I've gone through life not thinking is a problem? Sure. You know, and I think it's a little bit related. It's it, I, I see an analogy a little bit in my mind around like types, for instance. Um, like it's maybe I'm stretching the analogy a little bit, but you sort of see like, you know, you can say, well, I've used, you know, untyped JavaScript my whole life and I am good at it and I can keep it in my head and I can write good apps with untyped JavaScript. And that's true for a lot of people, but um, I think there's like a certain... Uh, you know, there's a certain trade-off in cost, but there's a certain benefit that you get with the ceremony of uh, like adding types to your app, for instance. And so, you know, when you have, say, TypeScript and you say, well, this variable is absolutely going to be a string, then that gives you a certain benefit um, at compile time. And I think with Redux, what you get is an expectation um, across your team around like this is how we do changes in our app and this is how we uh, mutate state in our app is that you sort of instill your team with this culture that like we're not going to mutate our objects we're going to like create a copy of this object with a with a like uh, like with a new value uh, in place. Does that clear what I mean by that? That like you, um, you know, when you, you, when you, uh, in Redux, what you'll often do is if you say you have an object that has like keys, you won't necessarily say, okay, on this original object, I'm going to set the key to a new value. You actually clone the object and then set the key to a new value on this new object. And there is a certain freedom that you get in not having to make those decisions all the time about, is it safe to mutate this object or not? You just know, well, we always return a new copy of the state. And I think that that sort of uh, constraint can be useful. Tell me how it's made a difference in the apps that you've worked on. 
But, sure. So like what you're saying is, well, you know, I've used two-way data binding and I find it, um, if, if you find that maintainable and you haven't gotten to a situation where you find two-way data binding to be cumbersome, then I, I don't know, I guess, Lucas, what, what, like you're also a, a person who has used Redux. Have you found yourself on apps where you find like two-way data binding results in like a rat's nest cascading of changes that are difficult to trace through the system? So I think two-way data binding is really kind of the wrong thing to zero in on. I think rather you have to look at the, the real underlying problem, which is complexity. And so one of the biggest problems with complexity is state. And especially when you have shared mutable states. So for instance, if you have an object that's being shared by two controllers, um, so it's coming from a service, but... Uh, two controllers have the ability to mutate that state um, or that object, well, now you have a problem. Because if you change it to one place, how do you guarantee that it's not going to explode in the other place? Like, there's no way to put any constraints over something uh, that is in, like, a sibling component. And so generally what you have to do then is something like defensive copying in other words, okay, I've created a copy local to my controller, and I've made a change, but now I need to find some way to communicate this back up. And so now that the server, or the service can then let every other piece within my application that knows about this update to the latest. And so I found that, you know, not only with, with state creates complexity, and so for every piece of mutable state, that you now have to consider kind of the permutations that your application can end up in, but you also have to consider really the control flow of your application. So in other words, if I modify this before I mutate this, is this going to break my application? And so this is, for instance, why we have like, you know, like initialization, like lifecycle hooks in our components, because there's things that you cannot do until a certain predetermined time. And so by introducing, you know, one or focusing on or being cognizant of control flow as well as the amount of state or moving parts you have, for me, what Redux brings to the table is a way to simplify those. So for instance, instead of having state in multiple places, it's in a single place that then gets propagated through my application. With Angular 2, that's really easy thanks to observables, is that you just essentially subscribe to an observable, and when something changes, it pushes those changes through your application. But to answer Ward's question about, you know, is it really simpler? I think that the analogy would be, it's much simpler to cross a one-way street than a two-way street. In other words, if I know that data is always coming from one direction, and I don't have to worry about any control flow in any other direction, then it's a lot easier to reason about that it's always coming from parent to child. And so you know, for me, it's about reducing complexity by reducing the amount of state in your application, but also simplifying the control flow in the sense that it's always in one direction, and that is how data always flows top to bottom. Yeah, I think part of the conflict too comes at, at a high level at a high level around um, th these ideas between like object oriented versus functional programming. There's a deep like worldview tied into one way or the other, right? Someone who likes re uh, Redux 
probably is a fan of like functional programming um, in a really deep way, right? When you have an object, for instance, like all of the state that's encapsulated with those objects, if, if, if you pass an object in as an argument and, you know, that object has, I don't know, say five instance variables, it's really as if you have a function that's taking five arguments, not just one. And when you, when you encapsulate state in objects, you're spreading state throughout your system. And those objects themselves can um, also change, which means you're, you're passing, when you pass an object into a system, you're passing more arguments than it seems like at first blush. Um, whereas when you have functional systems, right, you say, well, the output of this function is deterministic. And um, the output of this function is always the result of this, like, uh, when you have a pure function, the result of a pure function is always the same output given the same inputs. And so by not hiding away um, any state or any extra parameters, uh, either away in objects or in other places of your system, you get more predictability because like pure functions are very predictable because you know all the inputs and you know that the output will always be the same uh, every time you call it with those same inputs. So let me give an example. Um, for instance, if you have a method that relies on some other internal state um so let me see here like for instance um oh i don't know like you you have like a, a method that does something if one thing happens or something else happens well how do you test that in isolation what is going to be the result of that method well you don't know because it depends on some other piece of internal state and so now you have to factor in what is the you know the, the two possible permutations that this exists? And then what happens if you have yet even another piece of internal state that you need to to factor in? Well, now you have you know even more permutations that you have to consider. And so this is kind of the struggle with, I think, object-oriented programming and mixing you know state with functionality is that it makes it really hard to reason about, or reason with the output of a method, thus making it hard to test. With unit test, it's slightly deceptive because what we're doing a lot of times is resetting the state in our before each block and really kind of controlling this in a vacuum. So every time we, you know, we run a, a unit test, well, we've kind of cleared the decks and set new state for it, and it works like we behave or we expect because we've controlled the state, but then once you put it out into the wild, that you cannot guarantee that the users are not going to get it into a state that you have not taken into account, which is why a lot of times, you know, when something goes wrong, our first response is like, hey, like this thing broke. It's like, well, can you refresh the page or, you know, restart your computer is essentially what we're doing is we are clearing the state. And so, therefore, I think that's where, you know, even having these deterministic um, you know, constructs in our application where it's like, I put one thing in and I'm always going to get the same thing out. How you accomplish that is by reducing internal state, which this is not a, a redux thing, but having, you know, container and presentational components or really components that really are stateless on the inside is, you know, that if I put something in, this is going to happen and there's not any kind of internal state to introduce any variables within that. And so I think really having um, 
you know, referential transparency within your test and that it, everything is deterministic and that it's you put one thing in and you're always going to get, um, you can expect to get something else out every single time. That I think outside of Redux, I think that's really, really important for writing stable systems. I think moving to, you know, kind of this immutable, you know, pure functions, um, you know, paradigm really facilitates that. As a practical matter, I mean, you got state, you do have state. It's the state of let's let's get concrete. Let's say we have a person who has a first name, a last name, and a social security number. It'll be so much easier to talk about it that way. And so we get that out of a store in Redux. The controller that's going to present that thing gets it, makes a call to some service, gets the thing. Now it's got an object and it's going to put it on the screen. Am I good so far? Yeah. All right. So, but I'm not allowed to change that thing. So I effectively make a copy of it because I know that the user, it's a form now, they're going to change the first name or the last name or the social security number. And by the way, this the object has, has no intrinsic business rules. Am I right? It's just a data bag for the most part? Yes. So there's, there's certain patterns around, you know, forms where maybe you, it, it depends on if you want to like say fire the event on key change or whether you want to fire the form being changed on submit kind of affects the design pattern, but go ahead, continue with your example before we dig. Well, well, I'm, I'm just, I want you to stop me. So I've got an, I've, I've got an object. I got an object out of the store because I asked for it. Right. And um, I've got to present it in such a way that the user can type the keystrokes. So obviously when they type sure. the keystrokes, I'm not going to use data binding to update the object because I'm not allowed to do that. So I have to capture it in some intermediate object. Is that a fair statement? Yes. In other words, and it's usually the, effectively the control model, the model that's, dry, that's actually interacting with the widgets on the screen. So the user does whatever the user does, and I had better have some controller logic that decides when the user is done doing whatever the user's done, and it's time to call this an update. Is that a fair statement? That's right, yeah. All right. By the way, do I have any business rules that are providing on-form validation at this time? And if so, where did they come from? Because there's this object that I got has no notion of being an entity. See, in, in classic, you know, my old fuddy-duddy way... We actually had entity objects, and the distinction between an entity and an object was that the entity had business rules associated with it. They governed its own validation. So it knew what it could and couldn't do, and that that whole logic, that all that reasoning about what you could and couldn't do was part of what it meant to be a person in the system, because we were talking about a person object. So, for example, if I tried, it knew, if the, it knew the first name was required. It wasn't going to let that not happen. Um, so anyway, I've got some rules. I presume that I can't have that. So I have to get my validation rules from somewhere. I don't get it from the store, do I? Sure. No, but you'd still have, you know, a class that was around, uh, you know, what, uh, like business logic applies to your like person object, right? You, you still like you, but you would just pass values, you know, you'd pass sort of the set of properties that can, that like make up this person, you'd pass that into a function that says, you know, is this a valid person? Why or why not? You'd still have that for sure. But the thing that they're mutating is a copy of my object. Is that right? Yeah. My real object, the one I got from sure. the store. So you are, right. you are going to want to isolate. So mutable state, there's nothing wrong with that. And like you have to have mutable state, in other words, to, you know, for users to do meaningful things, what you do not want is shared mutable state. And so... Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, in this case, you'd have the form data. The user is editing the mm -hmm. form data, which would be separate from like the user object. Right. The user, the object, the person object that came in was the source of truth, and I projected that onto the form in some way, and the users making their changes into this temporary mutable thing that nobody else sees. And now mm -hmm. it's time to do something. By the way, this is actually what's going on in two-way data binding, too. It's just that it, event, it gets back to the other. What happens is when is the values that the user enters go back somewhere. But here in the Redux world, those values do not go back. They instead are shipped in a kind of a message to the store. Is that a fair statement? Yes. You form an action, and, right? You form an action from the new right. value of that form, yeah. And it has a pen, and that's... That's called a message in traditional programming speech. Yes, yeah. In Redux, you would create a, a, an action in, in Redux parlance, and, and you would uh, file that off to the reducer, and the reducer is what would take the action plus the old state and then update the store. Now, this is all happening synchronously at this point, correct? So where so So the object goes to the store. It's then manipulated by what are called reducers and the result of that is an update to the store and a, a returned object which is a new the new uh, because we haven't mutated the old object you get a new object back is that right a new person that's correct and now i must flow that back onto the screen discarding my old one put the new one in reset the form and around we go is that right sounds about right Okay, so, so that's the basic pattern that we're getting across. So I can see that. Uh, now, how does everybody who's interested in that particular person, let's call him Lucas, how, does, uh, how and when does everybody find out about the fact that Lucas has changed? Well, you're subscribed to the store, and so the minute that the reducer returns a new value, that, that's then propagated to everybody that has a reference to that particular item in the application store. In the case of NGRX store, it is via an observable that gets pushed out to everybody. So when I set, let's suppose the other, we have another view on there that's just a list of the people. It's kind of this master detail thing that we've got. So we were making our change in the detail and we had a master list. Does that sound fair? Yep. All right, so I made my change. It went to the store. The store, uh, when I built my list, I built it is an observable that's listening for changes to that list. And so the new list comes back at me with the new version of Lucas. Is that the way it works? Yes. So everybody has to uh, is listening to the store and getting an update. Now, when I listen to the store, maybe they've got a filter on it. You know, they're actually interested in only in the people who work in the print department. And Lucas doesn't work in the print department. So they're sure. still going to hear the message, right? And then That's they have right. to filter it out. And they have to filter it out again. Yes, they've got a thousand because this is an enterprise app. They got a thousand things on the screen, and they have to filter it out each time because the the list got updated. So yeah, let's, of course, yeah. I mean, and there's other, you know, certainly other ways maybe that you could optimize that. But yes, in the in the in the case that you set up for sure. Okay, so uh, you know, if if I'm taking inventory in my head of all the little pieces that go round and around and around here, let's contrast that. Let's contrast that with that old way um, where I got the Lucas person object and uh, we changed Lucas's first name 
to Betty. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I just changed the darn property. And everybody gets Betty. Suddenly Lucas is Betty. I didn't have to write anything. I have to write a single line of code to bring that off. Because the two-way data binding is already doing that. I'm, I'm trying to figure out just from the start, taking inventory and being told, uh, you, know, you know, I mean, the complexity that's involved in going around the circle. And we haven't even introduced asynchrony yet. I keep listening to this and I keep wondering why that's simpler. And by the way, I haven't even talked about the nature of the object and whether the object could be um, constructed in such a way that it was just as observable, actually, when you made changes as anything else. Yeah, so, you know, I think that, like, there is maybe, like, a case of over-prescription in Redux where you find folks using it blindly in cases where it's unnecessary. I mean, if you um, – so Dan Abramoff, uh, like, the Redux creator, he works for Facebook now, um, he even talks about on Twitter pretty frequently that – um, if you're just getting started, right, if you're a lone developer or maybe one or two developers and you're, uh, you know, Redux was originally made for React and he he's speaking mainly in a React context and he says, you know, if you're just starting off learning React and you're just building your first app, you don't need Redux out of the gate, right? Um, Redux is a tool that is built for like teams that have grown outside like one developer who's keeping everything in his head and like a smaller app, like the 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 problems that you know flux originally and then um, you know sort of distilled into Redux were addressing was this idea that um, we have lots of different components that are all over the page that are all trying to interact with the same data and you know we're getting race conditions I think one of the original like uh, the original motivating apps for flux as I understand it was. Uh, uh, Facebook Messenger, right, is that you've got this chat window, and then you've got the uh, threads window, and then you've got the unread messages count, and then a new window, uh, like a new message comes in, and you've got uh, things that need to be updated in all of those components, um, and it's repeats of the same data. You can't necessarily just you know, update the uh, username in the chat window for the object that is in the chat window component because you also have the username in the threads component and you also have the unread count up in the menu bar. And so if you just change the local object in one window, you're not necessarily, uh, those aren't necessarily going to be propagated, right? So then you say, well, you what you need to do is you need to have it read from some sort of outside service. And that's a good strategy is you could have a... Um, you know, the, that list of data out in some outside service and then have all of the objects that are like the threads window and the chat window could also be watching that list to see if it uh, to see if the objects changed, for instance. But um, and, it, and it's when you sort of like build on that and you build it and say, well, why do we need to reimplement the data flow for every single service? What if we could sort of structure the data flow um, in a way that instead of being unique for every different type of service, it's actually like consistent throughout our whole application. And I think that's how you sort of end up with uh, the Redux or the flux pattern of this actions store dispatcher. Sure. Uh, but, you know, that is not the only way to roll. Um, we've long had services that had cached data that had object identity so that I always knew the Lucas was the Lucas object. And everybody who wanted the Lucas object got the Lucas object. And no matter how many times I read 
the database to find a Lucas object, whether I look for people by the, the first letter of L or by the last name R or people who are in the print department, and I queried the database and it came back. It said, hey, object identity, so it, um, I've always got, however I go at it, I've got the same Lucas object. And anybody who wants to display the Lucas object just gets it from the cached object. Looking good to me. This is a pretty standard um, pattern that that uh, has been followed for a long time. It's an entity uh, uh, unit of work repository pattern, with uh, you know. Um, and I'm thinking, where's my problem? Where's I'm getting multiple? Dis I'm displaying the same Lucas everywhere on three or four different places. I can see Lucas's. By following the navigation, the relationship between Lucas and messages, I can see his messages in his message window. And if those change, that's all good, and they're still attached to the Lucas object. I mean, I'm just sitting here thinking to myself, what's my problem? What is my problem that this is solving? Yeah, I think if you are happy with mutatable state, I don't necessarily know that I can convince you... That, Don't convince like, me. Convince our audience. Yeah. You started that. You guys all start this thing by saying that it's time to give up mutable state, and you know it's passe, and it's all. And the reason we have to do it is because we all want to get on the functional bandwagon, and we're gonna and we're gonna understand something and cure cancer here. I'm not like cure what? I mean, I'm I'm still waiting for the problem. Where every time I look, I see. Uh, the claims to a problem that doesn't actually exist. So, or just, yeah. I just have to understand here. Like, are you telling me that you see no problem with having shared mutable state, like just strewn across your application? That you think it's totally fine to have across multiple components a single object that everybody is sharing and that they are able to to mutate. And so, if you well, change I, it, away, I, think, I think that if you're not careful, I think that this is true for all systems, including Redux. If I'm not careful and I allow two different screens with two different sets of business rules to mutate the Lucas object, yes, um, there's a potential for trouble. And I don't care what system it is; I don't care if it's Redux or anything else. Somebody has to stand guard. That's the validation rules, and they have to sit in some common place. So, if you're asking me whether I would just have a free for all. Well, of course I wouldn't do that. Do I think that free-for-all systems exist? Absolutely. But that's, not a f but, that, but that's not intrinsic to the architecture of mutable state. It's intrinsic to bad design. And you can do that in Redux, too. I can have a gazillion things. I can have multiple screens that are all trying to update the Lucas object. And they're using no. gators, and they all send reducer. They all send messages to the store. And whoever last one in wins or whatever, right? Doesn't that create some kind of chaos? Isn't that a potential for chaos? So when you say you have multiple screens that are updating, what? Like I'm trying to understand. Lucas, Lucas, I got three. I got three different screens on which I can change some fact about you. Mm-hmm. Much as I love this, you guys carry on. I don't. It shouldn't be the word show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, one thing that I think is challenging, like, uh, I do think that there are certain challenges in Redux, um, starting with the fact that, uh, like, 
Sometimes it feels like you do feel like there's a little bit of ceremony, especially when you have smaller apps, right? So we'll start there, that you've got to set up your store, you've got to set up your actions, you've got to set up your reducers, right? I mean, the first time that I saw a reducer that had like 30 case statements in one like giant reducer function, I was like, really? This is like the modern state of web design is we have these like massive case, like switch statements. Um, and I do think that there are like, uh, you know, there's challenges there. You do sort of wish that you could almost just like call a function instead of firing an action. Right. Um, instead of turning the action into a data object first, like there is an aspect of which it would be nice to be able to just call a function instead of like creating an intermediate action object. One of the things that I think would be interesting for Lucas and I to talk about is like trade-offs when like using NGRX. So, you know, Lucas, you and I have talked about a little bit about this offline, but maybe we could bring it on here. Tell me about what you like about NGRX. So, so one of the things that I so f just to set the stage, I'm actually a really big fan of like pure Redux. I like um, you know, calling functions uh, on objects and I'm not actually a huge observables fan. I'm a little bit of um, an outlier on where I'm like a big fan of Angular 2. You know, I've got this book on Angular 2. And I'm actually, I actually don't really love observables. I, I understand them, but I feel like there's a really high barrier to entry. But Lucas, on the other hand, like loves NGRX. So Lucas, can you tell us a little bit about like what NGRX is and like what you like about it? Sure. So let me start out and say one of the things that I like about Redux is that um, you can write a version of Redux uh, from memory in about 10 minutes. So, for instance, you take your reducers. Uh, there's nothing special about that. Um, it's just a function that takes a state object and an action object, and based on your action type, it will perform some operation and return a new object. So that's very simple to write. And then you need a place to actually store that state, and so that goes into the store, and that's also a very simple to write. And then using um, action creators, there's a way to kind of abstract out uh, some of that business logic of when this action happens or that this is how we need to prepare the payload to go back into the reducer. So in a sense, I think that, you know, just like you can explain, for instance, MVC in about, you know, less than 10 minutes, I think you know Redux is a pattern you can also explain uh, fairly easy. That's a but super. That's a super important point too. Sorry to interrupt you, but I I think that like this idea that like Flux and Redux um, are patterns like MVC is so important that like I think that like the Flux, the Flux pattern is like is as important as MVC because uh, like. There are a lot of ways in that like regular MVC sort of falls down when we're talking about like client side web apps that are coupled with a server. Um, and I know that I was confused about that early on. Like I was like, what is Flux or like what is Redux? And, and, and really it is like a pattern, like you're saying. So, sorry. And so to that sense is um, I think patterns are good, but, you know, I will make a concession uh, to our dear friend Ward is that, you know, just as you can get caught up, you know, shoving, you know, things into kind of containers or ideas for the sake of doing it. Um, I've seen this done with MVC where you're like trying to basically force it into like an MVC pattern because that's what you're doing. And maybe like an MVVM pattern is a better fit that, you know, I think Redux, what for me, it just gives me a pattern 
an approach to simplify, again, you know, shared state or state in general and control flow, which the side effect of that is that it really reduces a lot of code that I would have written to, to manage a lot of those things. So that's Redux. Then the next question is, well, how do you actually propagate state to your application? So when I change it in one place, how do... How does the rest of the application know? Well, the beauty of observables is that it pushes state to the consumer as new uh, data comes in. And so it will do it over time, unlike a promise that resolves only one time and that's it. And observable will continue to push out data. And so to me, that's really kind of the core um, beauty of NG. Um, Rx is that you know the store is built on top of observables that I can then basically wrap a service around, subscribe to uh, my data model, and I can basically use it right you know bind directly to it in my templates using the async pipe, and you know now really my controllers or my component classes become really very small that it's almost just a pass through where I'm almost using an observable binding directly from the store right into my component. But on top of that, with an observable is you're always getting a piece of data, but then you can transform it using observable operators. Um, RSJS operators, you know, is however you see fit. And so not only can you take a single data stream and say, well, I want to filter out this and I need to, you know, do this. And, um, you know, maybe I want to debounce or I want to throttle this input or, you know, whatever that, or I want to reduce, you know, these results into a single result, you can transform that and prepare that data however you need into your component, but then you can also combine streams together. So for instance, using combine latest is you can have two basically data models in your store. Well, let's say that you have like a table of users and a table of events. And you want to say like, for this event, these users are attending this. Well, now you can say, take these two streams, you can combine them together and say, when either one of these emits a new value, we need to calculate this new observable data and hand it to our view. And so now we have some really powerful ways to, in a functional manner, pass or take data from, you know, essentially like the beginning of an assembly line and pass it all the way through to the end and transform it in a just the way that we need for our components to display. And so again, that, you know, talking about, you know, kind of, you know, stores or rather reducers and being, you know, these immutable operations, well, that same kind of pattern applies to observables and you want to also avoid side effects using, um, you know, using observables. And if you need to do side effects, you know, there's kind of some ways to do that. And there are reasons for that. But as a whole, you know, seeing a reducer as kind of these pure functions that just modify state, seeing your um, observable methods that also just take and, you know, transform data, but they're not, um, they're not mutable operations in so much that uh, Jaffer uh, Hussein, who wrote a lot of the observable stuff has um, even came out with a pretty awesome uh, Gulp plugin that would go through your code and actually analyze like these are, you know, uh, mutable operations hit and then, you know, kind of call those out just like you would, you know, do a lint on your project. And so that is for me, 
I think, again, you know, minimizing state, minimizing control flow, and doing it in a safe, predictable manner that is easy to test, that one of the biggest side effects of that is I write a lot less code because I'm not having to do like defensive copying or, you know, trying to, you know, to manage state or, you know, these different particular, you know, nuances, you know, at a local component level. Can you talk a little bit more, a little bit more about like what NGRX is and how it works and how, like how it's different, for instance, than, uh, say like Pure Redux? There's very, very little difference. Uh, so, uh, Bob, he watched the Dan Abramoff videos on Egghead, and I'm almost doing a direct quote. He watched them, then he watched them again, and he wrote NGRX. Um, you know, pretty much over the weekend. The only difference is that it uses um, observables instead of, you know, with regular straight Redux, um, you know, it's kind of this event passing to, you know, to basically communicate state changes. And um, so I think Ward's right is here, uh, but just kidding. Start <laughs> the, uh, the, I mean, that, was my, that was my commentary. Yeah. <laughs> is, is Rob literally wrote NGRX in a weekend after watching uh, Dan Abramoff's videos. And so other than kind of the observable piece, um, you know, it's pretty comparable in so much that even, you know, major pieces of the ecosystem um, you know, just port right over. So again, right, right. is a pattern and it's not a strict like react thing. So even like reducers, like there's nothing reacty um, ish about it is it's just JavaScript. And so right. that's where um, you know, very little difference. You can even do middleware. Um, personally, for me, I've found that um, because you're using observables and everything, I generally would just put a service um, kind of in front of the uh, the reducers or the store. So if I need to basically make a server side call, I'll just do that in the within a service, kind of just in front of it, and then on completion, then I'll pass the new state up to the store. And then on the other side, if I need, you know, kind of computed value, so for instance, I have, you know, users and events, then I'll have another service sitting on the other side of that to kind of compute observables and really, like, apply, um, you know, any kind of business rules or logic um, to transform my data in a way that I need. And so I might have, like, a, you know, a user event service that will take users and events and um, using combined latest um, hand that off. And so that's a, just a straight observable RxJS uh, thing at that point. Yeah, one of the things that I love about using, like, uh, about NGRX is that, like, your reducers port over, like, pretty much exactly. Like, you don't need, um, like, you can just reuse the same reducers that you were using with, like, regular Redux. And so even you could take, you know, reducers from, like, React, you know, move them over to Angular 1, and then move them over to Angular 2, because they're for the most part just JavaScript. So um, I did a course for Egghead that's going to be coming out on Angular 1x and uh, Redux and all of my reducers because I did it in ES6. It's a straight port. And so that's another thing I like is that it's a pattern and it's not a framework thing. And you're abstracting out really kind of your business logic into you know, kind of this Geneva, Switzerland, like neutral place that you can then port you know, wherever you want. So, Nate, I have a question for you. How sure how how in Redux do you flow the um, the the changes back to all the screens that want to listen? How do people listen? 
so the first step is that you subscribe to the store and you can uh, the most naive implementation is you subscribe to any change in the store and if anything changes then you want to peel out the data that you are listening to and then re-render it on your view um, of course you don't always want to listen to um, there's two problems with that one is just performance wise you don't necessarily need to listen to everything that ever changed in your store and the other is that you don't want the thing that is uh rendering the view to know about the internal structure of your state, right? Because we're talking about putting almost your entire application's state into one giant uh, object at the center of your application. So handling each of those in turn, one is uh, just the performance issue. How do you only be notified of the particular change that you're interested in? Um, there's different ways. It depends on what the data, the central data structure is. So. Um, you know, if you're using observables, there are certain ways to peel off just the stream that you're interested there. Um, a lot of folks will use like immutable.js, which is uh, like a fairly, like a very performant way to say like, I only want to know when this particular key changes, then, you know, fulfill the subscription or like, you know, give me the callback. Um, and then in terms of like the problem of knowing about the internal of your state, there's a pattern that's, you know, part of Redux called selectors. And the idea is that a selector takes a tree of your state, right? It's a function that takes the state as input and then returns the data object that you need for your view. So, uh, so for instance, in this case where, you know, we have our user management app and the, the form needs to show, you know, first and last name, um, it doesn't. You, you wouldn't want your component, your form component that shows that form to have to understand the entire internal structure of your central state tree. And so to uh, to bridge that gap, that's why you create selectors is the pattern that you use in Redux. You, have, you write a selector that says, well, I know how to read the state and I'm going to read the state and pull an object out and then I'll give that to the view. So why would you want to write that by hand? See, this is where I really think that, that observables do come to the fore because it's an entire language for doing filtering, mapping, selecting, projecting. It's, um, uh, you know, you, you don't have to make up your own way to do it. It's pretty much what observables are good at. Yeah, that's true. Observables are good at it. Um, I think that, you know, observables are super powerful if you have a team that is... Um, willing to take the time to learn. So I assume we're talking about, you know, RxJS, right? If you have a team that is like good enough to learn RxJS and they're willing to put in the time to learn the top 10 or 20 operators that you need to know, and they're willing to like stop and learn what's the difference between a hot and cold observable and, uh, and they can think functionally and, then, yeah, uh, uh, RxJS is a very concise way that, and a very powerful way that you can use uh, to do those operations. But I kind of think the challenges with RxJS in particular is that the API surface area is so large. Um, there's so many different functions that it takes time to get into. You have to really want to do it. And Using uh, streams in RxJS, it also reminds me a lot of a similar uh, problem that you run into when you use streams with, uh, like, let's say Node.js, right? Is instead of, is if you try to use streams everywhere in your Node.js apps, it feels very similar. You sort of have this pipe that when everything goes through the pipe perfectly, once you get the pipe figured out, 
it's beautiful. It's like the short, concise code that everything flows through. But as soon as you sort of have any sort of edge case or you want to do debugging or you start getting like you want to apply back pressure or you have like these uh, like the edge cases that all invariably show up, I, I always find that it's like super hard to kind of like uh, separate these like long train of pipe operators and then really dig in to debug when something goes wrong. And so I think that's one of the pragmatic challenges that I've had with observables is even though I understand them very well, I realize like I understand them very, really well and I'm still having a really hard time working with it practically. Like I can't, I've, you know, done trainings at certain companies where the average level of developer is not at a level where they're willing to really understand RxJS. And so I think that's like a risk for widespread adoption. It doesn't mean you shouldn't use it, but I just think it's like a difficulty that we're going to see um, with adoption for uh, like RxJS more broadly. So it's interesting, um, if I can interject, is you can essentially replace Redux with um, just a few lines of observable code. And Dan Abramoff actually makes... Um, he, he admits this in um, one of, somewhere in the official documentation. He said, you know, it's been said that you can do, you know, Redux with RSJS in like two lines using scan. Um, he said this is probably true. Yeah, in a subject, yeah. On the subject, he said you could, you know, you could do that. Um, ben Lesh has, um, you know, kind of said the same thing. And so, you know, for me, um, being kind of in the middle of this is I love observables. I love the power and that it gives to you. And once you kind of wrap your mind around streams and, and kind of how that works in reactive interfaces, it's really, really cool. But there are things that um, I would actually probably prefer to do in an observable as opposed to, you know, handling that in straight Redux. So, for instance, two things coming off of a store, I am going to use, you know, RxJS combined latest to perform, you know, that data transformation. What I like, though, is that um, the operators and the reducers, you know, it still follows that, you know, kind of immutable peer uh, function pattern. And so there's a, a quite a bit of overlap there in terms of, I think, the, the essence of, of it. Um, and so that's, I think, really important about that. But again, I think where one of the issues is, the reality is RxJS is really, really hard. Um, I've been working at it for almost a year, and there's still times where I'm just like, I know there's an operator to do this. I have no idea what it is, and I spent 40 minutes reading through the documentations, you know, getting on the Egghead Slack channel, like begging for help, and um, you know, it's really powerful. But it's there's a steep learning curve, whereas I think Redux is a pattern. You can explain that in 10 minutes, and um, it's quite a bit easier to I think wrap your mind around. In that sense, so I think it also is one is what is the learning curve, and whereas one is you know a technology or a library, you know one is just a pattern that you can even choose to say I'm going to use just you know a little bit of it, and you know leave the rest you know alone, and so in my case I tend to use you know the Redux pattern liberally with observables and that works well, but um, you know they are kind of apples to oranges just a bit, but at the same time they complement each other quite well. Yeah, they do. Yeah, yeah. And in that uh, in that article that we wrote recently with using Redux and TypeScript, we actually provide like a minimal implementation of Redux, both in TypeScript in the like straightforward you know function way, and then also in the observables way, where we're just using you know a subject with scan and reduce, and um, it's yeah, they're both super similar. And 
I think that's that's a really important point that you keep making is just that it's it's a pattern and it's a very simple pattern. It's it's not and it's a tool that you use to organize the complexity. Um, it's not necessarily like the be all end all of all data architecture. And we still love Ward no matter what. <laughs> well, you know, I'm just uh, I'm I'm a guy who looks at it and says yes, it's absolutely. I, I can see the appeal. For one, it talks about a single source of truth, and a lot of people aren't ready for that. You know, they're like, that's a revelation to people. And uh, and, uh, and it is a simple, you can learn the Redux pattern, as you say, in, a, in an hour or, or less. Um, the, the, what, what's interesting is the idea that because the pattern is simple, that the net result at scale is simple. And that claim is the one that I haven't found to be empirically true. Every time I, you know, somebody shows me their solution in a Redux style or an NGRX style, they say, see here, look at this code. Isn't this, I, I look at it and it's got like six times the moving parts that I need and I can write it in half the code. And I'm trying, uh, and yes, um, it was simple. It was simple, but it, it, multi, it, like many simple things, it gets exponential. I would like to actually. I'm super interested in your your thoughts and the time that we have left around like so. For with Angular two, um, you know, there's there's uh, less widespread two A data binding. I mean, of course, you can do it with ng model, for instance, but that's really the only part built into Angular two where they're uh, you know doing two A data binding. Uh, what are your recommendations for ways that we could make our data architecture simpler um, without using Redux? Oh, that's a different show, and and uh, of course I happen to be uh, in full disclosure. Um, uh, an open source project called BreezeJS is something that I've been in, deeply involved in for a long time, um, which also takes the single source of truth idea, and it and it also has a, a rich notion of identity maps and and objects that have you know, that are actually observable. As it turns out. Um, so, uh, but, but, you know, as a practical matter, that's the kind of apps that we've been building. We've been building apps that use Breeze, that use this entity model, and that um, uh, that screens uh, bind, that, that components bind to, use two-way data binding, and it works just fine, um, because ng model is pretty much what you need to bind any form input like a text box or a select box and so forth uh, what else I mean where else do I need it um, but, uh, although actually in Angular 2 it's not hard to use the two-way data banding syntax without ng model um, so it, it, I've got a kind of it just works feeling um, with it and the, and I what I find is that people spend almost no time at all uh, working with the model and how they got the model. They don't talk, like like people in Redux are talking about the reducers and all this stuff all the time. Nobody's talking about the data model. Nobody's talking about how they're getting the data. People are talking about what they're putting on screen, how they're interacting with the user. And they spend almost zero time talking about how they make Breeze work or how they make their entity models work. And that seems to me to be about where, where I want to see people spend their time because that's where the eyeballs are. Uh, when I see people talking about their reducers, when I see people wrestling with um, complex uh, observable manipulations and their heads are all wrapped around that and they can't stop talking about that and they're not talking about what goes on screen, uh, that's when you lose me. So that's my nutshell. 
So I think I know what our uh, next episode is going to be. Um, yeah, anyone Breeze know a good guest for Breeze? I hear they're jerk faces, but... Um, <laughs> they are they are totally jerk faces. <laughs> I'd love to hear more about it for sure. Yep. All right, let's do picks then. Ward, what are your picks? Well, I'm in New York City at the moment, and I'm about to see Hamilton. So I've been reading a biography of Hamilton by Chernow, which was actually... It's really a good biography, and it was actually the book that kind of inspired the play. And uh, I'm picking that book. It's called Hamilton, which is kind of hard to remember, but it's that's what it is. Cool. Lucas, what are your picks? So my picks are going to be... Um, I want to pick the Out of the Tar Pit paper. I know I did that the last time I was on um, by uh, Victor uh, Savkin. He, he's the one that pointed me to it. Um, I think that I've since went back and read it again, and it's just really, really good. It changed a lot of my worldview about a lot of the things I said in the show about state and control flow, and the code volume that comes out of that has been, um, it's really kind of affected that and caused me to um, kind of think about those things. The other pick that I have is, well, let's see here. There is a post, or rather, the uh, speaking of RxJS, if you go to their website, they have a really great overview of RxJS. And so it's, it's quite a long kind of a document. I printed it out, and it was about 22 pages. But it's a really good um, kind of read about you know the high-level RxJS, RxJS stuff. And I will put uh, that link in the show notes so the the rxjs overview on their new site is excellent all right i've got a uh, pick real quick um so this last week or yesterday actually was labor day and uh i took my kids fishing uh it was at a, a trout farm which means that you're pretty much guaranteed to catch something and the other bonus is that they actually clean and fillet the fish for you so i didn't even have to get my hands dirty um which is a nice way to fish and then we went and had a fish fry at my brother's house. So uh, I'm going to pick f- uh, fishing and uh, fish fries with family. Nate, what are your picks? Nice. Well, my first pick is definitely Lucas's new uh, Angular 2 Patterns Git book. It's totally awesome because it shows you how to do uh, like Angular 2 stuff in Angular 1. And it's super good. Um, another person that I think is uh, really good who's like up and coming is his name is uh, Hussein Jurda, and he works for Deloitte and he has an article uh, pretty that was out pretty recently is called Building Angular 2 Applications with Immutable JS and Redux. It's also uh, it's also pretty good. Can I have a third? Yeah, go. All right. So there's another one that's really good. It's called uh, this is a little bit off the wall, but do you guys you guys like Pokemon Go? Um, there is a uh, there's a super interesting article by uh, by Vinkatesh Rao, the ribbon farm guy. It's called about uh, it's called uh, it's talking about consensual realities. The idea is that uh, augmented reality has basically lowered the barrier for writing onto reality. Um, you know, it used, it used to sort of be that like, uh, if you want it, you know, there's all sorts of shared realities that we have, right? Like we all just agree to that, like, you know, money is valuable or that like the United States exists, right? It's, it's, it's an idea, but we all just sort of agree to it. And, and like, uh, what does it mean when we all have this shared hallucination of, uh, Pokemon go? And one of the things that he talks about is that like, as developers, 
um, we can kind of write onto reality now. Augmented reality provides this like brand new tool uh, where we can sort of say like, oh, yes, there's a Pokemon over there. There's a creature over there. Hold up your phone and you can see it. Um, uh, the, the article is called The Cambrian Explosion of Consensual Realities. And it's super interesting, especially as like uh, creators to see these new ways of impact that as developers we're going to be able to have on the world. All Whoa. right. That was super deep. <laughs> Bro. Wow. So do you want to give us just a quick quick rundown on where people can follow you or see what you're up to or buy a book from you or something? Yeah, sure. Um, on Twitter, my handle is Eigenjoy. Um, and you can follow our company at uh, Twitter on fullstack uh, fullstack.io. And you can get a copy of NG Book 2 um, at ng-book.com slash 2. It's all the way up to date with RC6. So we try to keep up to date with um, everything that's uh, everything that's coming out within a week of when they release it. So, uh, yeah, check it out. It's definitely it's more up to date than the docs, actually, in some places. And so it's really, I think, one of the best ways to learn Angular 2. Now, you know, Redux is one thing, but you did wow. not. He, in the he just threw some shade. He threw some shade at me, baby. <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> How are you on? The, are you on the Angular docs? Uh, is, a little bit. They're, oh. they're super good. The docs are super good, and there's so many of them. Keep but, backpedaling, baby. The if I could interject, um, I've actually I've read NG Book Two, and just as a a consumer, this is not a paid. Testimony or anything like that. Uh, Nate and, and Ari and company have done a really, really good job um, on the Angular 2 book. And I really think it's in terms of um, books and that way of consume materials, I think it's the best on the market. So uh, a glowing yeah. thumbs up for me. It's very, very good. And I just want to say that I think it's, it's great and that there shouldn't be a single voice and there can't be a single voice or a single position on Angular 2. There's so many ways to go at it and so many perspectives. And I think it's just fantastic that you're um, doing a great job of that. Thank you. All right. Well, uh, let's go ahead and wrap this show up. Thanks for coming, Nate. Thank you very much. We'll go ahead and uh, end and we'll catch you all next week. All right. Thank you. Bye. Woo!